I want to invite you uh, tonight to turn once again to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 29 in just a moment or two. While you're turning, I I want to uh, simply add my encouragement to you to continue to pray for uh, your pastor. Um, My mom is still living, but my dad died in 2003, uh, and it is, um, in my 57 years, the most difficult personal experience I've ever endured, and uh, still miss my daddy. Um, Oftentimes, wish I could call him and and ask him stuff. And um, so um, there will be days ahead in the loss of his mom for Scott, and I encourage you to continue to pray for him. You know, I'm going to begin tonight with uh, a tired joke. I think I've told you both times I've had the opportunity to speak here. And that is that when I was a child, I had a drug problem because my mom and daddy drug me to church on Sunday morning drug me to church on Sunday night, drug me to church on Wednesday night, and for many, many years drug me to church every fourth Saturday night for Southern Gospel singings. And one of the realities that comes from that, and by the way, I do consider it a huge uh, blessing, I joke about it, but the longer I live, the more grateful I am um, that my parents were um, involved in our local church and even more importantly than that, they, uh, they loved the Lord, uh, they loved his body and bride, uh, and they loved those who led uh, our local church, our pastors, and, and uh, grateful for that heritage. But if you grew up in church as I did, if you had that same drug problem, you uh, may have, as a child, viewed scripture in the same way that I did, something of a a rule book full of do's and don'ts, the stuff you ought to do and not do. I remember my mama telling me when she was young, and she's 85 now, that, that uh, a lot of these uh, rules of life that came from growing up in church were boiled down to a simple statement. I don't smoke, drink, or chew, and I don't date boys who do. Um, and it's sadly, it's easy even for church people to Uh, to think of Scripture in those terms. And one of the blessings of life as uh, one who not only grew up in church, but one that God saw fit to uh, redeem and give me the opportunity to grow as a believer is to begin to understand uh, the truth that that God's Word is really about His, um, I often call it His self-disclosure. It is a revealing of His character. Even the, um, the directives that we have, and hear me, there are plenty of them there. You read through uh, many of the Pauline epistles and you'll find, um, you'll find the language of command that is imperative verbs, direction uh, that uh, comes with it, an expectation that we obey and that we act on those commands. But far beyond that, even with those commands, all of that is a reflection of God's character. It is a matter of him revealing himself to those that he has created. Now, I share that with you tonight because as we look at John 1, 29 to 34, there are very few places, I believe, in Scripture that more is revealed 
in fewer words than in the six verses we have before us this evening. In a great economy of words, there is so much of God's character that is revealed to us. It's a rich and deep well that reveals a great deal about who God is and what he has done. And with that foundation, I encourage you to follow along with me. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, John 1, beginning at verse 29. The next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have tonight. God, I thank you first and foremost that you have placed in our hearts a desire to be in your presence and in the presence of your people. You've planted in our hearts a desire not just to to be around one another, but Lord, to, to come together for the purpose of worship and to worship through the examination of your word to take a look at your character that you have disclosed to us through your word. And so to that end, God, tonight we yield ourselves to you and we ask that you guide us. Lord, even as you prompted John in his latter years to reflect back on the experiences that he had personally with you, Lord Jesus, we ask, Father, now that you open our hearts and minds. Enable us not just to understand the details of what is here, but use it to penetrate our hearts, to shape our lives, to mold us more clearly into the likeness and image of the Son, our Savior, our Lord, Jesus. And through Him we pray. Amen. I cannot remember if I have shared with you before, but in my early days of ministry, I was drawn to epistles as texts for preaching, and specifically Pauline epistles, because they are um, naturally didactic. That means they, they naturally instruct. And, uh, and frankly, they're just a little easier to preach. They're a little easier to communicate in that fashion. Uh, Romans is the most obvious example, I believe, where Paul lays out a lot of propositional truth and then lays out the consequential uh, practical realities of those truths and calls upon us for, for action in response. But in more recent years, my, my heart's been drawn to the Gospels in part because they read more like biography. 
And none of the Gospels is that more true of than John's Gospel account. While Romans may read like a semester uh, systematic theology class, I would describe John's Gospel as a week-long retreat. Hours and days of conversation that reveal the nature, the mind, the motivations, the very essence of someone, and of course, in this case, that is Jesus. In chapter one of John's gospel, it feels a little bit like the first full day of that retreat. Uh, a wealth of, of Christology that's um, present here in John one. You may remember back when I've had the opportunity to stand in this pulpit before, back at last summer and then in the fall, we looked at what John has written about Jesus already. Uh, the, the eternal existence of God the Son, as well as the, the incarnation and the implications of God the Son inserting himself into the linear stream of human history as a human. And of course, over the last several weeks, Pastor Scott has has um, detailed that very much from the great Christological hymn of Philippians 2. We also saw the essentiality of Jesus to the whole of creation. Nothing that we see, touch, feel, experience, nothing that we know, even those things that are beyond our comprehension, none of that, John tells us, exists without Jesus, none of it came into being without the eternally existent word that became flesh. So now John, as he continues to write his biography of Jesus, he begins to tell us about the, the life and work of another man named John. John the apostle is writing the gospel account and he tells us about John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. If you read through the descriptions of John, he would have been viewed as somewhat of a strange dude. He had an odd diet. He had an even stranger wardrobe. Something that was, um, I'm relying on my memory here. That's not always reliable, but a wardrobe that was about 900 years out of fashion. but he was a dude who spoke with authority. Authority that was recognized by others around him. And he was one whose defined mission, John the Apostle tells us, is to bear witness to this God who came in flesh. And that's what we find him doing here. If you read in the verses leading up to verse 29, you find that there were those who had begun to follow John the, the Baptist, being a student of human behavior. John the Apostle does not tell us this, but you know, I suspect that some were following John the Baptist out of conviction. I suspect there were some that were following John the Baptist out of curiosity. Oddity seems to draw attention. But whether they were following out of conviction or curiosity, we find John the Baptist 
proclaiming this truth. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Some of those that were following him, we also find, thought he was Messiah. Remember that term um, that we in English would, would say Christ, that is a title. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. It's his position. And in the, the Jewish language, or at least our Anglicanization of the Jewish language, Messiah is the one who is anointed that is set aside for a specific purpose. And again, that purpose he reveals is the redemption of God's people. And so there were people that thought that maybe John the Baptist is this Messiah. And he says, no, I'm not. Yet he points to Jesus as the Messiah. And one more detail of background I want to share with you before we dig into the meat of the text. And it is this. Pretty sure I mentioned this the last couple of times. But remember as you read through John's gospel that John is a Jewish guy. We find it in the New Testament, but it has some Old Testament flavor to it because John, again, is a Jewish guy. It reflects the Hebrew mind. While that's important to grasping the whole message of John, I believe it's especially crucial for us to understand the text we have before us tonight. So much of the imagery of John's words here come from the Old Testament sacrificial system, and I'll dig into that a little bit as we go. With that background laid, I want us to notice in the text three vital characteristics revealed by the sacrifice that we have as believers in Jesus. Notice with me first that Jesus is our substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus is our substitutionary sacrifice. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to call your attention first to this word, behold. It's not a word we use much these days. It's simply a word to call someone's attention to something that is significant. Similar to our saying, check this out. Or if you're on Twitter, it's like a retweet. You're calling someone else's attention to something. You know, as a native of Charlotte, one of my first uh, earliest consistent contact with people in this part of the state was when I worked uh, for a, a regional trucking company. It's based in Lincolnton, a little bit northwest of Charlotte. We had a terminal in Kinston. We hauled a lot of stuff out of the DuPont plant when it was uh, at its peak. And so we had a small terminal in Kinston. All the, the folks that worked in the office were natives of Lenore or Greene counties. And I noticed the truck drivers too, by the way, and they would, you know, they would call in. This was before the days of emails, text messages, satellite communication, that sort of stuff that trucking companies use now. Guys would have to pick up a phone, dial a toll-free number, and get us in the office in Lincolnton. But it didn't take me long to notice that all of our drivers and the terminal personnel here in eastern North Carolina 
would always start a serious conversation in the same way. Look. Now, if you're non-native, I don't know if you've noticed that here in Newburn. Drive up the road to Kinston, I guarantee you you'll find it there. Look. When any of these drivers or terminal personnel would call, if they had something serious to talk about, you know, being good Southern folk, there's always going to be a moment or two of chit-chat that was not really of any substance. But you always knew the conversation was turning serious when that guy would say, look, that's the sort of thing that we find John the Baptist doing here. If he were from Kinston instead of Palestine, he wouldn't say, behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. He would say, look, the Lamb of God. It is a call for our attention that he is about to say something really significant. And of course, he does. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, religious leaders had just asked John the Baptist who he was. Again, some seemed to think he was the Messiah, or maybe they were concerned as they grew concerned about Jesus that he was going to claim to be the Messiah, and it was going to somehow upset their role and place in society and rights and privileges that came with that. But they're trying to figure out John the Baptist too. They ask him if he's Messiah. He says no. But he not only explained that he was not, but he sets his eyes on Jesus and he says to those who have gathered around him and those who have begun to follow him, look, the Lamb of God. That phrase or title, by the way, the Lamb of God is a very purposed choice of words. To the Jewish mind, it recalls the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament law. And I would say it even calls the Hebrew mind back even further to the experience of Abraham going up to sacrifice his son Isaac. If you'll recall that event from Genesis 22, God had called Abraham to offer or literally to bring his son Isaac as a burnt offering. And Isaac had obviously been involved in ritual sacrifices, if you remember the story, and on their way up to the mountain, uh, up the mountain, Isaac says, I see the wood and the fire, but I don't see the lamb that we will sacrifice. Again, in our contemporary language, by dad, what are we going to kill when we get there? And you'll also recall that Abraham assured his son in that moment that God would provide. And in Genesis 22, beginning at verse 9, it says, When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Critical phrase there. Instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The ram in the thicket was the animal God provided as a substitute for Isaac. And as John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God, he was calling for those around him to see that it was this Jesus who was the Lamb of God who was providing for them a substitute. In fact, he would be the substitute that the Father provided as a sacrifice for their sin. Again, the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a display of this reality that a substitute died in the place of people in order for them to experience God's forgiveness. Remember that phrase from Leviticus? Forgive me, I don't remember the reference off the top of my head. I think it's in chapter 16. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Again, the whole sacrificial system and going back again to the event of Abraham and Isaac was to fix into the minds of God's people that there must be a substitute that dies in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. And so it's significant on a level I'm not sure we American Christians can understand for John the Baptist to say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul wrote to the church at Rome about this substitutionary nature of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf in Romans 5. By the way, if you're not in the habit of memorizing Scripture, I would encourage you that Romans 5, 6 through 8 is an excellent place to start. For while we were still weak, he says, at the right time Christ died for the Greek word who pair on behalf of the ungodly, that is as a substitute. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for, that is on behalf of, a good person one would dare to die. But God showed his love, God shows his love rather for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for, who pair on behalf of, as a substitute for us. Paul is simply affirming the truth to the Roman church of what John the Baptist said of Jesus, that he is the substitute to die in our place. You know, oftentimes when we think about substitutes, we, can, we may tend to think of them as something less than the real thing, not as good a quality. When Cindy and I first moved to Arizona to plant a church there, one of the things that I did just to cultivate relationships with families was to stu- substitute in the schools. I learned, by the way, that I, while the notion when we first moved there that substituting in elementary school would be easier, one day in second grade convinced me that high school was much better. 
I, I told several friends, I said, you know, one of the realities about high school, when you're subbing there, I said, if you got a punk in your class, you only got that punk for an hour. But if you in elementary school and you got a punk in your class, you got that punk all day long. I also pointed out that, you know, second graders, they don't get sarcasm. And it's just one of the tools I like to use. <laughs> high schoolers got that. But you know, when I would step into a high school classroom at Tonopah Valley High School, you know, I was a substitute and I can assure you that I was of lesser quality. Two days in particular stick out in my mind, the day I substituted in band class. And the cat didn't leave me no lesson plans. It was, man, I, would, I never watched a clock in my working days like I watched a clock that day. And the day I substituted in Mr. Garcia's Spanish class. I know a little bit of Spanish. Donde esta la baño? Where's the bathroom? You need to know how to say that if you ever go to a Spanish-speaking country. But, you know, thank God Mr. Garcia left lesson plans. I kind of worked through the day. But again, I was a lesser quality instructor than they were accustomed to. A substitute. But you know, there are other instances where substitutes we find are far better. A few, uh, I guess maybe two months or so ago, I was down in Jacksonville, meet with a pastor down there, and it was his uh, idea to meet at Mission Barbecue. Now, if you've never eaten there, I encourage you, if you find yourself in Jacksonville, go by there. You'll understand why this pastor wanted to meet me at Mission Barbecue. He went there frequently. He knew the guy who manages uh, the store. And so when Ryan and I walked up and we're, we're starting to place his order, the manager came over, saw Ryan comes over, starts chitting, chatting with us a little bit. And, and we place our order and I had my state convention credit card there ready to, to pay. And then the manager takes this card and he swipes it in the thing, punches a few buttons and he says, you're good. Now, friends, in that case, that substitute was far better than what I had to offer. I mean, I'm grateful to God for a budget that I can do stuff like that, but it still has limitations. You know, there's limitations on the amount of money we can spend for meals. There's limitations on the budget annually, that sort of stuff that we have to live within. But the manager of this restaurant, whatever we wanted. And I must confess my carnal nature to you. I was thinking, man, I should have been hungrier. <laughs> but another way that substitute was demonstrated as being superior, when Ryan and I went and sat down chatting after some of the lull of the business, the beginning of the lunch rush was over. The manager came out to talk to Ryan a little bit. He goes there often enough, has relationships with many of the people that work there. And while the manager was standing there, he didn't say to us, um, you know, you, you, you really need to pay for that cornbread. It was already paid for. He didn't say to us, I, I, I'm, I'm going to have to get something from you for that brisket. 
It was already paid for. It was a substitute that was superior to what we had to offer. Now, why do I belabor that point? Friends, here is the reality. When we speak of Jesus as a substitutionary sacrifice, it is critically important for us to understand that, yes, He stepped in for us. And please, if you don't hear anything else I say, hear me say this. As our substitute, Jesus died not just to show us how to love, as some will tell you. Certainly it had that effect. But he died our death. He bore the weight of our sin. He took the guilt of our sin upon him. He bore the wrath of a holy and just father toward our sin in that moment on the cross. That's why we hear him say, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He is our substitute. When we place our faith and trust in him, that payment, that sacrifice for our sin is done. It is finished. Friends, it is one of the most basic foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. He died in our place. This is what John the Baptist was saying. No wonder he called for their attention with behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, notice not only is Jesus our substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. In verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't just stop by calling Jesus the Lamb of God. Again, that in itself communicating a substitutionary sacrifice that he was. But he goes on to say, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, remember, John is a Jewish guy. He hearkens back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. You may already be aware of this, but one of the keys to understanding this text and exactly what it is saying is, is understanding what happens on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, outlined in Leviticus 16. Two goats are brought, if you're familiar with the ritual. Lots are cast. One goat is slaughtered and his blood is shed and sprinkled upon the mercy seat as a sacrifice to settle the penalty of death for sin. But the other goat then has, his, has the, the sins of the people ceremonially, it's a hard word for me, ceremonially pronounced upon his head. And then he is led out into the wilderness to perish. That sacrificial event at Yom Kippur, by the way, is where we get our cultural term scapegoat. The one who takes the guilt. It was a critical reminder for the people, particularly to a, to a people who learn by oral tradition and not by written word so much as we do, 
But it was critical for them at that time and that place to see not only is the, the blood shed, not only is the, the, the lamb or the goat sacrificed, not only is that animal dying in my place, but also very importantly, it was a visual reminder that their guilt of sin was taken away as well. My dear friends, it has been my experience in the course of 27 years now of ministry that this seems to be such a difficult thing for Christian people to grasp. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. That means the penalty is settled. The price is paid. There is no guilt that is upon us as a result of that. Now, to be clear, read Romans 6, that is not a license to sin. But what we do understand is that because Jesus has paid the penalty and he's taken our guilt, we can have a right relationship with the one who created us for that purpose. He is our atoning sacrifice. By the way, anytime I talk about atonement, I, I often reference Romans 3. In fact, I used this text yesterday in a, a funeral service. Romans 3, beginning at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's a word we don't use often, but man, it is so precious to me. It is a satisfaction of wrath as a propitiation, a satisfaction of God's wrath upon our sin so that by his blood we might be forgiven. This was to show, picking up in verse 25, God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, the whole of, as Paul is reflecting back on the, the, the event of the cross, which John the Baptist is pointing toward in that time and that place, they are both communicating this truth that with the death of Jesus, atonement is made. We don't have something to make up as a result of that. Jesus paid it all. We sing that, but sometimes we don't seem to act like we believe it. Jesus paid it all. He is the Father, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, going back to my example of lunch at the barbecue restaurant in Jacksonville. Again, the manager didn't come and say, you, you owe me for that cornbread. It was paid. It was done. It was paid in full. Friends, so what does this mean to us? When we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are freed from the fear and anxiety of not being good enough. If you'll permit me, we'll hit the last point quickly, but if you'll permit me, eons ago in my earliest days of ministry, pastoring a, 
rural church up in Bertie County. There was a, a woman there who, from the first time I met her, it's as if we had known each other all our lives. She was so kind and gracious to me. There were times when I would go see Viola and I would sit down in her living room and sometimes I'd just be tired and I'd sit there and fall asleep on a pastoral visit. Viola never complained about that. I'd apologize and she said, I'm just glad you're sleeping here. Some years later, her daughter who had retired from the FBI and her daughter had worked there way back to the days when J. Edgar Hoover was running the place. And she had retired from the FBI and moved home, care for her mother who was in failing health. And one day she, or one week rather, she took time and went away, went to see her children back up in the DC area and her mom got sick, wound up in the hospital. And her daughter was so overwhelmed, you know, the notion, well, if I hadn't left, mama wouldn't wound up in the hospital. And friends, it's a sad reality to tell you that the guilt that this woman felt was so great that she took her own life as a result of that. Now, if you've ever had any relationship with someone who's had a suicide in their family, I can tell you that don't solve a problem. It just exacerbates problems. Her daughter had taken her life after I had already left Riverside, was pastoring in Charlotte, and I happened to be back up in that area for something. And Viola had moved to a care facility, and it was just a few months after her daughter had taken her life. And I went to see Viola, and as you might imagine, she was just overwhelmed with her own sense of guilt. By the way, there's a reason her daughter carried that. And as I listened to her talk about it, I said, Viola, I said, if you and I were getting ready to go on a trip somewhere, we were going to take the train, go across the country. We get to the train station. I've got my luggage and you got your luggage. I said, are you going to take my luggage and hoist it up on the train for me? She said, why, no. I said, why not? She said, well, it's not mine to carry. I said, Viola, the guilt of what your daughter has done ain't yours to carry either. And I said, any influence that you've had in her life, Jesus has paid for that himself. I said, it's not yours. Quit carrying it. Grieve your daughter. Certainly, I expect you would but not as those who have no hope, knowing that, that even if you did make a mistake in the process, even if you did something wrong, Jesus has paid for that. Don't you carry it any longer.
Friends, whatever it may be, I believe it critical for us to understand to live a life of victory and walking with Christ and serving Him. To recognize that Jesus has not only paid the penalty for our sin, but He has removed from us the guilt associated with it. It is not ours. Let us not carry it. Jesus is our substitutionary sacrifice. He's our atoning sacrifice. And the final reality I want us to see is that Jesus is our anointed sacrifice. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, you may be aware, because I know some of you are serious students of the Scripture, that the term anointed literally means to smear with oil or fat. In fact, the Greek word has its roots in the word from which we get the term lipid. If you go have some blood work done, they do lipid panel. It's, It's rooted in the same word that is translated in Scripture as anointed. It was, again, a smearing of oil or fat on an animal or on a person. And it was used simply to distinguish or designate. It was a visible sign of God's power and his working in a person's life or in their physical body. And John the Baptist says a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus and remained on him. And he goes on to say that reality was a distinguishing mark on Jesus. Again, remember, the Hebrew mind, it was an indication that this Jesus was and is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one set aside for the purpose of humanity's redemption. A critical point for John's first century readers particularly those who were ethnically Jewish, including those in the scene as John writes about what happened here, who had been taught that Messiah would come. All of their lives, they were told to watch for Messiah. And this anointing or this distinguishing mark of the dove is a communication of the reality that the one that they had sought and the generations before them had sought as the one set aside for the purpose of the redemption of God's people had come. He is the anointed one. Jesus made this claim of himself as the anointed one. You may recall when he went to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, he read from Isaiah 61 and When he finished, he told the people there that the Old Testament prophecy referred to him saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And while they did not use the term anointed, in Acts 4, we find that Peter and John claim of him to be the anointed one. They were preaching, if you'll recall, after healing a man and explaining how it had happened. Religious authorities had questioned them. 
And in response to those questions, Peter offers no apology for preaching that Jesus was the Messiah, that is, he is the anointed one, saying, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is saying he is the anointed one. He is the one and only. Friends, it's a popular notion today that there are many ways to heaven or that there are many ways to a relationship with God, many ways to be spiritual. Friends, I'll just say on the authority of Scripture, it ain't so. When John writes of this anointing, this visible distinguishing of Jesus as the Messiah, he is making an exclusive claim about Jesus that Jesus himself later, John's gospel would record, makes for himself that he and he alone is qualified and capable to be our substitutionary and atoning sacrifice. And in fact, he died in our place because he was anointed, chosen, distinguished, set aside for that purpose. You see what John explains to us in this account of John the Baptist and what John the Baptist said are these realities, that Jesus is not merely a sacrifice. Jesus is not merely a good sacrifice. Jesus is not even merely the best sacrifice. Jesus is the only sacrifice sufficient to pay for our sin or the sin of any human. He is the anointed sacrifice. So what do we do with these truths besides simply revel in them. Here's what I hope we would, would do. First, I want to I challenge you to take some time this week and read through the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Read about that event where, where the, the, the blood was shed and poured on the mercy seat to pay the penalty for sin, and then the goat was taken away visibly, removing the guilt of the people Make some notes. Talk with another Christian friend, maybe your husband or wife, maybe a neighbor, maybe someone from your Sunday school class, but talk about the implication of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice. And not just for us, but for those all around us. The people with whom we work, the people among whom we live, the people who serve us in restaurants, in stores, in coffee shops. And here is my hope and prayer. Is that if we are gripped by these realities, first and foremost, we will fall even deeper in love with Jesus. Humbled by the reality that he would take our sin and die our death. But my hope also is that our love for him will be expressed in our love for those around us who do not know him. Friends, the people around us who we, you know, who see life so differently. Friends, it's not just because they have polit different political viewpoints. It's not simply because they, they have a different life experience than us. It's because they are not yet the redeemed. 
And let us love them enough to communicate the truth of who Jesus is to them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. I thank you, Lord, that you saw fit to use my mom and daddy to make sure that I would hear the good news of Jesus. I thank you for faithful Sunday school teachers that endured my antics as a child to communicate the truth that we have just examined tonight. I thank you for all of those along the course of my life who have repeated these truths, having them resonate not just in my mind, but Lord, by the work of your Holy Spirit in my heart to believe them and to be transformed as a result. And so we lift up to you our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, those who serve us, those amongst whom we find ourselves every day who do not yet know you. God, I lift up to you my neighbors who give no indication that they know you. Lord, I ask for favor to be able to share that good news with power and authority so that they may enjoy the blessing and benefit of knowing you as our substitutionary sacrifice, our atoning sacrifice, and our anointed sacrifice. Lord, may that truth radiate from us. Use it to draw others to yourself. Redeem for us new brothers and sisters, and for you new joint heirs. For Christ we ask it and through him. Amen.